0: Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Marcus Kron. We interview experts so you can understand all aspects of real estate investing. Whether you're a passive investor or an experienced syndicator, this podcast can guide you on your journey of building wealth through real estate. If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, MarcusKron.com. Hey guys, Marcus Kron here. Welcome to Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today I'm joined by Spencer Hillegos, a former technology leader of 13 years, who is now a full-time real estate investor. know he will provide a ton of insight for passive investors, so make sure you listen to the whole episode. So Spencer,
1: welcome to the show. Marcus, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's it's an honor. I know we've been actually interacting on LinkedIn for quite a while now, and it's great to actually have a relationship beyond that. So I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, I know. And it's a great way to engage with people and you just see people popping up all the time and and uh, on LinkedIn and it's a great platform and I've, we've chatted about it before on my show, but um, this is kind of proof in motion of like how you can engage with people and build some type of connection. You're seeing my posts, I'm seeing yours. We're engaging and then, you know, it can lead to something in that conversation, a podcast. So I'm really excited to dive in into this, Spencer. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an intro. So Spencer's a full-time real estate investor that helps passive investors deploy capital into storage and multifamily syndications with vetted sponsors and vetted deals. His company, Madison Investing, has co-sponsored deals totaling more than 5,000 units for more than $600 million. Spencer invests in syndications as an LP and actively leads Madison Investing alongside his co-founder, Jennifer Morimoto. In November 2019, Spencer retired from his lucrative technology career and now he's focused on spending his time with loved ones and growing Madison Investing by helping passive investors achieve their goals. So, Spencer, you've accomplished a lot so far already, and I'm sure you got a lot of runway ahead of you. And you're a younger guy, so um, yeah. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, kind of how you how you ended up in this space, and, and how you made that transition to full time real estate investing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for the intro. You know, and it, it's um, I have to comment too that. You know, although um, I, I may seem like a younger guy, as a, as someone who came from uh, technology, who came from tech companies, they would probably call me the old guard. As ironic as that is, um, you know, I, I'm I'm 37 at this point, point. and so as as some of the older folks in real estate might might attest to, they're like oh, you, you know, you're a younger guy. And I'm like, well, they, they called me ancient in the in the tech world. <laughs> so it's always a funny comparison industry to industry there. But I will say this is that, um, you know, I, I'm currently talking to you on a unique day where we're in the middle of this, this COVID crisis uh, still as a country. And uh, like so many other parents and entrepreneurs who work out of the home, I'm literally taking this phone call from my kid's room right now because we've had a contractor in our house this week. My wife, who's still an executive full time, is is using our office downstairs, and we have our kids at home because there's no childcare today. So there, there's a little slice of real life for everyone who is listening. Um, so no, that's no worries. And I'm gonna
0: interject there for one quick moment. Like you looks your your room there, your background. It looks awfully familiar to it, how I started recording mine. And, um, where I actually started recording in my uh, my son's the nursery in the baby room and and had just had the curtains behind me and and yeah you just gotta you gotta adjust and you know working from home and things like that like that's that's just how you gotta roll with it right so sorry continue
1: <laughs> you gotta you gotta man and I appreciate you bringing it up you know it's it's one of those things about um, showing vulnerability that I have found is so critical you know and and just having people understand that. Um, doing professional work doesn't necessarily always mean that it's glamorous. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, the, the nice backdrop in our professional office where you typically record an interview like this is not currently available. But, hey, so it goes. Onward we go. So, I yeah, I'm based out of the Bay Area. Um, so I I was born and raised here uh, in California. So I went, joined the local business shortly after college. Um, I, I went into technology companies. And, and so I actually spent 13 years across all of those different organizations um, and five different software companies. A few of them ended up having really, really huge trajectories, uh, most of which were in FinTech, um, the cool way of saying finance tech. You know, So most were solving these back office problems for small businesses that I won't bore people with, like software, accountancy, um, accountancy software for payroll, all that stuff. So some of the names you'd, hear, you'd think about would be like Intuit, uh, Zero with an X, Gusto. So th- th- these are all companies that, um, provide critical stuff that solves boring problems, but critical problems. And somehow I stumbled my way into a company called lending home. And this is back in 26, early 2016, they are now the biggest fix and flip lender in the country for single family homes. And so as a guy who grew up, you know, I actually grew up within a real estate household. My dad was a broker, a residential real estate broker for 13 years. I'm sorry, for 30 years. Um, I got one view of, of what real estate meant. And it, it took me th- that long until 2016 to finally kind of, you know, full roundabout, find my way as an adult into the real estate world. And I joined this company called Lending Home. And it was my job to come in and grow their loan origination groups, which uh, which was a hardcore learning experience for me. It was wonderful because I had to get licensed as a loan originator just to go grow and scale to a group that eventually did $4 billion in loans and, and ended up scaling from about 150 transactions per month to about 600. And so that's that's relevant here because what you learn when you're going through that journey is how underwriting decisions are made. And before you get lost in the weeds of, you know, commercial underwrite versus residential underwrite versus multifamily versus storage versus, you know, asset to asset, there's just some core concepts about great decisions. And, and how people make you know informed decisions using data, using a framework, u- using approaches that, that are really tried and, and, and tested and, and proven. And so I feel so blessed to have gone through that. Um, but all my coworkers inside that company Marcus they were they were nudging me to go become a flipper. And I can barely swing a hammer, man. I mean I, <laughs> I, I, I thank uh, YouTube every day for saving me around the house when I have to fix something small. but you know when it comes to playing to strength, I looked at our household, I looked at the fact that I had a 13-year career, you know, having a comfortable lifestyle, but not necessarily having a financial game plan for our family that would allow me to do any any form of retirement or downshift. I was working 80 to 100-hour weeks for 13 years, you know, and, and that's just not a lifestyle as a, as a dad um, or as a husband where I could be present. And so ultimately, what I was going for was trying to find an asset and a strategy that would make more sense and allow us to invest and get predictability and so flips weren't quite that for me Um, i I was really looking for something more like multifamily now we work on storage and multifamily and now we help other people um, invest in these asset classes um, and we do our best to de-risk them as much as possible and so we co-invest along with our investors in some of these bigger projects but i never would have gotten here without going through the single family journey first you know starting with lending home um, full-time in my day job and then also investing in a bunch of rentals uh, we still have a bunch of single-family home rentals, both locally in California and out in the Midwest. We got some turkeys too, and through all that stuff, we somehow found our way to multifamily and to doing syndication deals. So, that's a heck of a mouthful. So, hopefully, I didn't lose lose anyone along the way.
0: No, it's a great great background there. And it's, I was actually laughing there to myself when you were talking about, uh, you know, you kind of playing to your strengths and you realizing that hey, you're not much of a handyman. You don't want to be swinging the hammer. You want to be, you know, like. Applying yourself into real estate, but utilizing your strength and really coming from that tech background, you're probably heavily analytical. It can really dive into the details, whether it be underwriting or analyzing a deal and things like that. And to be honest, like I'm very similar in that sense where uh, like I have an accounting background and, you know, I was always really drawn to real estate and, and uh, probably like I, I wor- worked in construction, for a while, but like, I was never really like, Hey, I'm, this is my trajectory. I'm a skilled handyman or carpenter or something like that. Like <laughs> probably in the last couple of weeks here, when my wife was asking me to fix something around the house and then, um, I, I fixed it after like painfully doing it, and I'm just like, oh, you know, call me Mr. Handyman around here. She's like, I'm not going to call you that because you're not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <'Cause> she's honest.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, but no, but that's that's a core thing in real estate is just learning to play to your strengths. And and there's a being a team sport in real estate. You can really find an area that you're best suited for, right? And and you found that. So talk about that that transition. You went. Single family realized multifamily is the best way to go, and, and in self storage, obviously you went into syndication model. But uh, yeah, did you jump in going passive investor right away? How did you, or, or did you go active right away? Talk about that a little
1: bit. Yeah, happy to. You know, so I was actually working full time still um, at lending home during you know uh, during working hours, and and really committed to that. You know, I, I didn't mail it in at all. I did have to start making decisions about how much I would uh try to overperform outside 40 hours a week you know but i would try to cap it at 40 hours a week and just allocate the rest of my brain space physical energy emotional energy towards doing all the commercial real estate work on nights and weekends and so outside of that we went locally bought that duplex um it was our first acquisition we spent way too much money on it and you know we were scared of buying sight unseen uh buying long distance which is why we spent 430 grand on a duplex which only cash flows about 200 bucks a month that's the kind of decision that i think a lack of education gets you into you know it's still humming along and i bring up that example for folks because our investors and and other folks who are relatively new to this to the whole category of real estate investing marcus they've told me that that's a very helpful example to share um, because most people feel the same way when they get started right like they they don't want to go and just take the leap into real estate without seeing and like feeling and actually like literally walking around this property, this thing that they're going to go invest in. But man, I wish we had not made that call. I mean, it's I'm thankful we did it because it got us on base, to use the baseball analogy. Um, But, you know, your dollar can go further in other ways. And so, you know, we bought that duplex. We then mustered up the courage to go buy a bunch of turnkey properties, still found out that the property manager, uh, even though we had one, Um, And we, you know, we're happy to pay for a property manager. I mean, every single time, I think it's well worth it. You still have to pick up the phone and manage the manager. (laughs) So we didn't necessarily love that aspect. We don't have time, you know, we're super strapped for time and time is the most precious thing in our arsenal right now. So that's when we, we were like, okay, let's go find something truly passive. And that, so we started as LPs and syndications, you know, so, so we put some capital into some syndications as LPs and, and that's really what, what started the snowball, um, from growing was like, we started to invest in them. We'd gone through the residential journey. Some of our colleagues, I mean, some of my colleagues in the tech world, they were like, what are these things you're investing in? It sounds like it's going well. And lo and behold, uh, you know, it, it turns out a lot of their folks were very interested in hearing more about that. In my experience in the corporate world, when you see a problem that comes up often enough and it comes up in conversation regularly, usually that means that there's something there, like there's a business opportunity there. And so that's what I leaned into. I was like, wait a sec, maybe I should go become an apartment owner operator. And truth be told, I'm not leaving the Bay Area anytime soon. I mean, we have lived outside of California. We've lived in in, uh, the wonderful state of Colorado for 10 years in the past. That's where my wife and I met. Um, but we're not leaving here. And I bring that up because there's two, a, a former mentor of mine, uh, categorized it this way. When I told them I was about to try to go become an apartment owner operator, he said, Spence, you got to take stock of, of your geography. You live in a money state. You don't live in a deal state. And I was like, well, okay, you're crushing my dreams a little bit. Um, and, and, and at the time it stung pretty bad because I was very enthusiastic about this choice. I thought it was the right choice uh, and they were right. And I'm so thankful that I got that feedback because we adjusted our strategy to build a model that solves both problems that we had in front of us. Not in a deal state, can't find a good cash flowing deal necessarily in, in the Bay Area to the standards that I was looking for. Wanted to go to the South, wanted to go to the Midwest. Uh, the Southeast, you know, these are places where you find great cash flowing apartment deals. You know, I'm sure plenty of, I've had good debates with my friends in California who were in the real estate business and they, they debate me on that one, but I, thankfully I always have the data. Um, so that said, we ended up going and building a, a, just an excellent co-sponsorship model. And what that means is that I am, am quite skilled at like finding the who, making sure that we were, we're able to go and understand and vet capable experienced sponsors operators the folks who are truly managing the asset in that market vetting the heck out of them with the many skills i acquired when i was hiring and vetting hundreds and growing hundreds of teams i'm sorry hundreds of people across dozens of teams at five different companies over 13 years so i got that that people in the who skill down in spades um but we had to go find a model that made sense where i could still you know, help bring equity capital do investor relations, and even help on some of the operational aspects too, where tech and real estate are a really helpful marriage. Uh, and I think there are so many skilled sponsors and operators that are out there right now, and they are excellent operators, but they don't necessarily know some of the table stakes basics that we consider really simple uh, within tech companies. So it was just a good marriage there. And so I didn't want to go become anymore um, the next pure owner operator, because I'm not next to the deal um, but I can certainly fly out to a deal, maybe not in the middle of COVID, but I've been on a plane dozens of times over the past couple of years going out to these deals as part of the diligence process, making sure that we're, uh, we're putting our capital and our, and we're helping guide our investors' capital towards good decisions and try to de-risk these deals as much as possible. And then we join in the GP and, and make sure that these things are run right until the end of the hold period when we sell them. So it's it's been a great strategy choice so far.
0: Yeah, and that's a fantastic background there. And and actually, when you were talking there before, you brought it up. I, I had heard you bring it up on another podcast, and I was gonna kind of ask you about it, where you had addressed, hey, you live in a, a money state, you know, not a deal state, right? And um, I was gonna bring that up because I, you know, being in a very similar scenario, right? I live in British Columbia uh, in in Canada, and where there's a lot of similarities between like you know Vancouver British Columbia and uh San Francisco Bay Area kind of like where you are where there's a there's a lot of wealthy people there's the most some of the most expensive real estate in the world and that's kind of a hurdle that I was facing especially for me when I was like either trying to buy into the market or look for something to buy as a rental property a single family and But it just didn't work. Like the model just didn't really work here because it's like, okay, you're going to go buy a single family home and pay $500,000 for something that needs like a whole bunch of rehab work. Like it just didn't make sense from a cash flow standpoint. And that's kind of where I got discouraged for a while, where it's like, I know real estate is a place I want to be and I know there's an opportunity to build wealth there, but it's like, this model doesn't work. at least where, where I'm from to get in and get, you know, you hear about these people out in the different areas where it's like, Oh, I, I bought a place for a hundred grand and I put you know 10 K down or I did a no money down. I'm like, how do I do this? It doesn't work here. Right. So, you know, I started looking at the different types of, I know like the, the bigger pockets publishing group came out with one called long distance real estate investing. And I'm just like trying to figure that out. I'm like, how do I do this? And then, you know, through that, that educational process, that's kind of where, I realized that, hey, there's a there's a better way. There's that syndication model where you don't have to do it all on your own. You don't have to try to figure out single families on your own or different things like that. Like there's there's a team model. there's there's different better ways of doing it, investing in different places that have better cash flow. And uh, and investing into scalable type systems within within apartments and, and different types of assets like that. So yeah, I, I just saw a lot of similarities there. So I just kind of wanted to highlight that. And and uh, no, it was it was cool you giving that background there. So you talked about now you kind of facilitate and help passive investors kind of get exposure into these these great. Uh, vetted deals, and before we before we hit record on this call here, you're we chatting about how you go about doing that. The most important aspect for you is is finding the best operator, and that's under discussed. So, you know, talk about some of the steps that you go through to find the best operators to to partner with and and uh, yeah, bring passive investors into.
1: Yeah. And I appreciate you kind of pulling on that thread, you know, and, um, and thanks for sharing kind of your, some of your own story too, and comparing the markets. It's really interesting to hear, you know, because it's not just a lot of times people think it's just a, a coastal thing in the U S and it's like, clearly that's not the case. (laughs) It's all over the world, depending on the country you're in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for, uh, for vetting sponsors, you know, I'm a big framework guy and I really, really benefited. I feel like from a couple key lessons that I got from my tech career, you know, when you have to move quickly, building something that is super complex whether it's like a lending underwriting engine where you're doing 600 loans a month or it's um in a company I was with prior to that and you're trying to do something as critical uh, as like tax calculation for a small business and it's got to be right down to the decimal you know and you're working with people that are experts all that stuff requires great decisions be made and they got to be made fast which is which is actually counter to each other right usually big great decisions have to be made slowly so how do you reconcile that um i you know i found out you can actually get around that if you build a great framework and i put together a framework and i didn't invent these individual concepts marcus of course not brilliant people that came before me did but i tailored it and deepened it for our use case you know so for us here are the five kind of points in a framework that i look for uh when it comes to vetting a sponsor i look for of course you know their their track record Um, track record simply just means have they done this kind of thing before, you know, and each of these has a, su- has a bunch of sub buckets, sub bullets beneath it. But we don't have to go into those unless you like to. So track record um, the, the team, meaning like who's in there, how do they interact with each other? A few other nuances there um, approach, you know, like, including like, like what is their, uh their execution um, approach, um, you know, how, how do they go like what do they do a value add strategy but what does value add really mean you know there's kind of two big buckets within that is it operational is it rehab based is it both a little bit a little bit of a mix um and and then you've also got uh you know the uh the legal you know you, just some legal aspects how do they structure their deals um all that good stuff you, you got uh last but not least communication I, I'm sorry last but not least values the um the values side is one that i really was i was wrestling with before i put into our uh, our formal criteria and it's because if you even look back to like i was walking through uh, walking through this framework with someone like actually showing them the spreadsheet on a coaching session last week just informally um and they were like oh where's values on your first version of this and i actually i, I didn't originally put it into our framework because so many folks i would, run, I would have conversations with in real estate markets they would go why do you have values? It's just squishy. Is the soft stuff. you know? And I, I went against my better judgment of wanting to put it in there. And it's very much in there now. It's part of our formal vetting criteria to have values in there. And there's ways to test for that. Because um, when I was in my leadership career in tech, and this is very brief, um, I found that that is truly the biggest difference over the long haul as to what companies are successful and what individuals and professionals are successful over, the, over a long enough period of time. Do they operate consistently on principles and values? And so I test for that too. And, you know, there are ways to to interview for that and kind of get to know a sponsor and and do they operate on a set of values. So those are the five ways that I I kind of look at a sponsor. Now, we are slower and more deliberate than a lot of the co-sponsors that are out there. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Typically, we'll take at least three months, maybe even up to six months just to get to know a sponsor. Um, When you first start the business, like any business, it's more like you going up to a sponsor and saying, "Please take me seriously, sponsor." <laughs> you know, uh, any any entrepreneur can appreciate that challenge. It's like when you're when you're a small fish and you're trying to get bigger. These days, we now get approached, and and it's it's a it's a wonderful blessing. Um, we're very thankful. You know that that sponsors do want to reach out and ask to partner with us, um, and we do have to decline most of them just because you know we have other commitments currently, and and we're not trying to add more multi-family sponsors at the moment. So when they reach out three to six months building a relationship. I actually put money into one of their deals at purely as an LP first. A lot of people say that they do that. I know for a fact they don't. We actually do. It takes, cause it's slow. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's always tough when someone reaches out with an outstanding deal to us and they say, Spence, we heard about you. Will you do this deal with us? And I say, I don't really know you yet, man. You know, I mean, I, I want to get to know you, but we can't do this deal, this eminent deal with you that's coming out in two weeks, four weeks, because we just don't have a relationship yet. Let's go build that relationship first, and then figure out maybe in you know maybe in a few months if we can do the next one. Once that all happens, of course, we put them through a background check, investigative background check. Usually, it costs about eight hundred to thousand bucks. Um, well worth it, um, and and that way you can help ensure that you're working with people that don't have you know financial crimes on the record, all that kind of stuff. I mean, last but not least. Is that uh, these days I'm actually also a registered securities professional, so that means that um, you know I have a broker dealer, uh, a, a FINRA broker dealer handling our back office from a compliance perspective. So usually that that also kind of narrows the pool of who we can partner with and the types of deals we can do because the the minimum professionalism um, and track record required is a little bit higher. You know, so so m- most of the time that means that we can't necessarily work with someone if it's their very first deal. Maybe even their second deal, um, they have to have a couple under their belt minimum, um, and then we we go from there. Yeah, and you said minimum threshold there, and, and uh, from the
0: the compliance standpoint, the broker dealer you're with, um, but. You're probably going to have, high, you know, potential higher standards than just a minimum set by the broker dealer. What are some of those those criteria and track record that you look for? Whether it's how many deals they've done, whether it's asset center management, or yeah, could you kind of highlight some of the criteria that you look for
1: on the track record? Yeah, you know, and I have a bit of a contrarian view to some of the more traditional folks out there on this topic, Marcus. Um, and and it is this. What I've learned from the tech world, and I've seen this kind of play itself out in the real estate world as well, is there's kind of a, if you visualize a graph um, with a bell curve on it, and you think about comparing uh, years of experience versus effectiveness as an active manager of an asset. I know it's a am taking a leap that people are tracking with me on this. Um, You got one axis that's gonna have years of experience, another axis that's gonna have effectiveness. I would argue, that people who go out and say, "I will only work with, like some LPS will say, "I will only work with people on the experience scale who have three cycles of experience, and what they're referring to is three real estate cycles of experience. That just weeded out the vast majority of players in the market. And you know that that means that they're pretty up there in years too. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, think almost universally, we all respect more experience, right? I certainly do. I, I not only respect my elders, I respect experience, and I listen to it. However, I have also seen too much experience tends to lead to a couple symptoms of disengagement. You know, you have people that are a little bit, they're comfortable. They're comfortable because they have a lot of zeros behind their balance sheet. They're comfortable because they can delegate 100% of their ownership within the deal. So I am comfortable finding someone who is still arguably up and coming as long as they have, you know, bare minimum, like two deals under their belt. Um, and uh, I would prefer to have a, a more than that, but I'm not draconian about it. You know, I, I, I think guidelines are what it's all about, um, similar to underwriting a deal from, from a bank's perspective within a lender. You know, you, you define this thing called a credit box within a lender before you make a decision on a loan. And then you have this other notion called compensating factors. And compensating factors is just a really industry way of basically saying, what's other stuff, <laughs> other variables? That can help make this a great decision and still a sound, justifiable decision. Um, And so, uh, you know, at least a couple deals. I think what matters to me even more than that, honestly, is this thing called failure response. And I don't know. That's not like a formal term. It's just the way I refer to it. Um, But it matters to me a lot. Which is, I want to ensure that a sponsor. You know, sometimes it's it's like a lone GP, like a lead GP. Sometimes, but more often it's like at least two. Some sometimes three um, lead sponsors within a general partnership team that are managing the asset. And I want to ensure w- at least one of those sponsors, hopefully all of them, have meaningful, uh have had a meaningful failure. And I mean that like a kicking in the teeth, brutally hard, challenging moment. And and how do they resolve that you know like how did they work through that um it, because and the reason that matters so much mark is, is like even if they don't necessarily have that in real estate let's say that they built a business on their own they did that over 5 to 10 years and then it crumbled and and they had to somehow fight their way through that they they don't assume the best in their in their planning scenarios they know that they whether they can rise to the occasion or not you don't want to be like if i'm an lp i don't want the first time that a sponsor no matter how good they are if they've had 10 incredible exits let's say and they've never missed the mark because they've done that within a bull market exclusively i don't want to be the first person to find out that they don't have any grit uh, because they're holding my 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 100k my 50k and they have to make a decision whether or not to do a capital call because their deal is underperforming and you know so that, that that's why i try to tease out um, failure response um, with a particular operator um, on in a GP team, like can they actually handle uh, some headwinds? You know, so again, like everything else in life, you can build a great framework. They're guidelines, um, and it's not, not not like a hardcore checklist. Yeah, and I, I love
0: that point that you brought up about uh, you know failure failure response because it's those types of um, things that really show their their grit, their like how they can get through and respond to those types of challenges because. I mean, real estate—you are going to chase or face challenges along the way, and it, it's how you respond to them that's going to, you know, improve you as an operator down the road. And and when you're faced with that inevitable problem again down the road, you're going to be more prepared to deal with it the next time, right? You don't want to be working with someone exclusively that's like, oh yeah, everything's roses, and I've never had a mistake, or and and if they're going to tell you that that they've never made a mistake, then probably a. a person or a group or operator to stay away from because um, either they're not telling the truth or you know they're exaggerating right and trying to cover something up that they have made mistakes but they're just trying to sell you and, and and put paint a rosy picture of how they're actually performing so yeah you highlighted some great factors there to kind of look at when when, uh, you know, looking at a sponsor or an operator to work with, so now digging into the next phase of it, when you get presented with a deal from one of these operators that you've vetted, what are some of the next steps? Like, how are you going when you're presented with a potential deal, you know, when you start getting to underwriting, what are the key things you're looking for underwriting um, when you're looking to potentially introduce this to your passive investors?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's... um. It's been interesting during COVID because so many, you got to call out the number one question that folks would ask before they finally decide to go into a passive investment as an LP um, is that, tell me what happens in like the worst possible scenario, right? like So as of 2019, before COVID, we would get that question in a theoretical sense, right? I mean, people would ask, so what happens if a Black Swan event comes? And we're in one now. So all the theoretical stuff goes out the window. We actually have true pressure testing scenarios that are playing themselves out right now with our within our portfolio and everyone else's right now. So it's it's been really helpful in that regard. I mean, as hard as it is for all the different folks that are out there being impacted directly, and some people unfortunately and tragically like losing their lives to this stuff, you know. So I'll just say that it's been informative as to are we are we underwriting well? Are we making smart decisions? And so far. It appears we have been because our portfolio is, is, is performing well throughout all this craziness. So that's so we're we're thankful for that. When we look at a deal, um, a couple things. You know, the the three part framework that is popularized very much out there these days, and I can take no credit for any of the stuff, Marcus, uh, because it was built by people far smarter than I am that came before me. You look, you know, you look at the who, you look at the where, meaning the market, and and you also look at kind of the what and the how, which is like the deal, you know, the execution plan, the business plan. Um, and so in that, in that order, after we've looked at the who, by the time another deal comes through, we already know this person. So we're now we're looking just at like kind of the market and and within the market, all those fundamentals that so many folks out there are, are familiar with, but if a, if a listener out there, if your audience is still kind of wrapping their head around the basics on this stuff, just to briefly cover it. You're looking for places that have great job supply and expected job growth. I mean, job, jobs are really the backbone of so much of this underwriting picture when it comes to the the market and the submarket. And so uh, the submarket meaning all the way down to the neighborhood. And so you're looking for companies that are growing like a lot of them, <laughs> hopefully near nearby the property that you're you're considering. A um, couple of markets that we're in right now. You know, we we focus within Texas and the Carolinas, and and uh, now we're doing stuff in Colorado and idaho even uh, it's like the most westerly that we go right now um these are all places that actually have a very favorable jobs picture and in some cases covid has even accelerated some of the growth in some of these markets because it's pushed people from some of the coastal markets like new york and san francisco and all that stuff so that's what we're looking for is a good jobs picture population growth uh really you know crime is reasonable. It's, it's a place that you'd feel like you'd be comfortable living, all that good stuff. And there's a lot more nuance and detail to it, but that's that's just the high level. On the deal itself, we focus on stabilized properties. And so, you know, stabilized meaning uh, 90% plus occupied at the time, you know, we're not, we're not focusing on deals where, uh, you know, it's it's truly distressed Um, Not to say that I'm against that, but we just haven't, it's not part of our focus. So um, storage facilities, number one, multifamily these days is kind of priority number two. So we're looking for year one cash flow, And that comes along with being a stabilized property, right? So, so you've got a functioning business, but it will still have some value add opportunity. Now value add can mean so many, (laughs) so many different things to so many different people, right? And so value add within the distressed world can mean like gutting an entire property and redoing the thing, maybe expanding with hundreds of units, maybe um, completely adding new amenities entirely. Right. Um, so in our case, it's typically a mix of heavy operational changes. Um, so operational improvements, you know, new manager, um, all that good stuff. And then also, depending on the on the property type, you're also going to do some renovations. Uh, usually interior with like light exterior. Um, and some kind of a mix there. So that's, that's kind of what we're looking for um, in terms of plan. You want to see your one cash flow. You want to see good cash reserves. Um, we're also looking for a deal that has the debt or the loan, because on these deals, you usually look into the takeout a loan, a commercial loan um, in order to buy it. So you want to make sure that the debt is structured in such a way where you have optionality um, and some, some buffer. You know, before, like, let's, let's say you take out a loan and it's a five-year hold, but you don't necessarily have a lot of optionality for how you exit that deal. Um, that wouldn't be good you know so you want to have some um, some reasonable leverage on the deal you want to have optionality to be able to, um, to to dispose of the asset or sell that project if you need to a couple different ways uh, and to get investors out feeling like they're taken care of um you know that they're that they're hitting what they need to hit on their return profile you know, and all that good stuff so that's kind of the stuff that we look at, at a really high level whirlwind speed um i'm trying to think of as anything else but i think i think we hit the big points maybe just one last thing i would add would be rents, you know, the number one income lever for these types of deals is the rent. And so right now with COVID, um, we're very much looking at, okay, if you're, let's say you're kicking off like a 5 year hold plan right now, um, five, six, seven, uh, what have you, the first year, potentially even two years, we're assuming close to zero, if not zero itself um, in rent growth, because, you know, we think, I mean, I, I think 2021 Will not necessarily be a rosy picture for some of these, for, particularly for multi-family. Doesn't mean we don't do deals. It just means you got to be selective and you got to be careful with what you focus on. But you know, I, I just threw a lot at you, so hopefully that made sense. <laughs> no, and it's good to really throw out as much as you can, and
0: and I mean that just demonstrates to the listeners here like there is a lot of stuff to look at, a lot of stuff to pay attention to, and like you said, you just highlighted the bullet points, high level stuff. But I mean, there's so much. So much analysis kind of involved in this. And that's kind of why it takes, you know, an experienced operator, somebody to actually go go in there and actually do the right analysis, right? Like look at the right markets, know, use some data. And you being a tech person yourself probably have has has had that ingrained in yourself like for years and years, you know, looking at data and really doing the analysis and not just basing it on a fluffy assumption of like, oh yeah, this seems like a good market. I'm just gonna, you know, invest in here. No, it's gonna be, well, this is a great market because. There's population growth, and you kind of like can quantify it. There's there's job growth, and all those different things, and then look at the actual um, you know, sub market even to that level, and then look at the individual property and and what assumptions you're making because that's going to be the most important thing right now is being more and more conservative because in the last 10 years, it's been a bull market in the real estate market. And, and anybody that just kind of said, Hey, yeah, I'm going to deploy capital into this deal. And and hopefully it turns out well, well, it probably did turn out well because it's just been in a massive run up in the economy and in real estate. And, but now it's going to show, you know, in these times when, like you said, there's a black swan event and, and there's kind of some questions in, in the economy, like it's going to take, you're, you're still going to be able to make money and make returns. It's just going to be with groups that make the right decisions and can manage well in, in the face of adversity. So yeah, you highlighted some great points there. So um, I'm actually going to start wrapping it up here and and taking it into the final four questions where you just give short to the point answers. So first off, what is your favorite real estate or business book?
1: Yeah, well, I'll give kind of the pre-answer, you know, I don't want this to steal my, my, my more immediate one. Got to say that everyone out there should read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It's kind of a duh. You know, if you haven't done it yet, please pick up that book. Second recommendation uh, is essentialism. Um, I've read it three times. I strongly recommend it to anyone, whether no matter what line of professional world you're in. um, It basically helps you understand how to say no. And that's where most people get hung up on prioritization, is they're too afraid to say no to other obligations. So check out essentialism.
0: Yeah. And that's actually a good point. I've heard of the book. I don't know if I've read it, uh, but it's just that where like, you might look at somebody that has like a mass level of success and it's like, oh, you're doing everything or you're, you've got so much going on, but they probably expanded their scope along the way, but it's probably all the things they said no to along the way when they were just building up like their expertise in one specific field of, like, say, real estate, multifamily, or single-family, or self-storage, or whatever. And then they're like, okay, I've mastered this. Now I can kind of maybe I'm going to increase my scope of what I'm doing on on different asset classes, or you know what I mean. It just takes a level of focus and just saying. Hey, I'm gonna just master this. Say no to everything else that's a distraction, and you know, even on a personal level, if it's like TV or different things like that, to just be you know self-improving and, and getting better as a as a as a person. But uh, sorry, I went on a, on a ramble there. But uh, you had some good points there about that uh, essentialism. So, what is one thing you wish you knew when you got started in real estate investing?
1: How to plan for cash flow on a monthly basis. You know, I think that that has to be a, because the example I gave earlier of our first property we bought, first rental we bought, we wouldn't have bought that property in hindsight. Um, I'm still thankful now it's appreciated and it's cash flowing. You know, it turned out, it turned out well, regardless, but, you know, planning for cash flow means you, you buy differently. Um, you, you, You buy less speculatively, speculatively, you buy for stuff that's being produced for you now. And so that, that would be my biggest one is like, are you actually able to buy for cash flow?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially so important right now. It's, you want that predictable income and, and be able to take even a drop in occupancy. If, if you have that, you know, you want to have that predictable income, uh, right now. So what's a daily habit that helps you be successful in real
1: estate? Ooh. Um, I'm kind of a, I'm a big runner, you know, I I don't run fast, (laughs) but, um, I would say I, I have a keystone habit, if you want to call it that, of, of running—you know, four times a week or so—and and it really clears my head. But I also listen to podcasts while I do it, so it's a way to keep up on the education. Listen to a great, great podcast like this, um, and then still be able to feel like I'm getting you know physical energy and also just blow off some steam if I ever need to, and like think through problems. So it's really helpful. There you go. And and this this last
0: question might actually be a blend of that last answer, or you know, it might be something totally different. But uh, what do you like to do for fun?
1: I like to play guitar, hang out with my kids, you know, I, I, it's, it's gotta be those things. I mean, I'm just a dad and I love being a dad and I love being a husband. So it's, it's family first. Um, but I would say guitar too. Awesome. Cool. So, uh, how can our listeners get in touch with you? Uh, two ways. Um, so we have a website, madisoninvesting.com. Um, so just reach out there and if you're accredited, we, we do have a list. If you want to join our group, passive investing program, you can kind of just move at your own pace. Uh, so if you, you go on our website, madisoninvesting.com and click join the list, um, you will have to talk to me, talk to 100% of the folks that join our group. Um, on LinkedIn, as we chatted about up front, Marcus, I'm also uh, very active there on a daily basis. So just reach out and connect. I'm happy to share uh, some of my daily internet rantings.
0: <laughs> yeah, you have some good rants on there though. Like it's it's engaging, right? So it's good. So. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No, I really appreciate you coming on the show. You added a ton of insight and a ton of value for my listeners, and I really enjoyed the conversation. So hope to connect again soon.
1: Likewise. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's been a blast. Okay. Take care.
0: If you want to get in touch with me directly to learn more about real estate or to see all of the available podcast episodes and show notes, visit my website, marcuscron.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. If you enjoy the podcast or if it provides value in any way, make sure to leave a five-star review. This helps the show attract top quality guests who will be able to provide even more insight into how you can build wealth through real estate. Talk to you next time.